0: We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are the right to freedom to worship as we choose, the freedom of speech and to say our minds, that all Americans are entitled to a free press, to assemble peaceably and to petition their government, to be free against unreasonable searches and seizures not to be put in double jeopardy or to be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. We believe that in criminal prosecutions, Americans have the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury, to confront their witnesses, and are entitled to the assistance of counsel. Further, that people accused of crimes shall be entitled to reasonable bail and to be free from cruel and unusual punishments and that women are entitled to a constitutional right to have an abortion if they so choose.
1: to Nero's Fiddle, episode 43, The Mechanism of Democracy. Wait, how'd that last one get in there? These are all constitutional rights guaranteed to us under the Bill of Rights, and we hold them all to be self-evident. But the right to an abortion? We know that's granted to us by the Constitution, and that there was a Supreme Court case back in the 70s, Roe v. Wade, that said so, but how'd it come about? I mean, we don't all hold that one to be self-evident, do we? So how is it a constitutional right? If we know it's a constitutional right, which right is it specifically? There's no express constitutional right to abortion. So what clause of the Constitution grants us this right? Let's look at a little constitutional history. We talked in episode 29 about Supreme Court nullification. This is the, sadly, time-honored tradition of the Supreme Court nullifying a law passed by the Congress of the United States of America that the Supreme Court doesn't like, no matter how thin the pretext. We saw how very conservative Supreme Courts in the late 19th and early 20th centuries did this for decades with the 14th Amendment. So let's look at a related but somewhat different Supreme Court practice that gave us Roe v. Wade. In 1965, the Supreme Court handed down a decision in the case of Griswold v. Connecticut. In 1879, Connecticut passed a law that banned the use of contraception. This was the law for about a hundred years in Connecticut. Then C. Lee Buxton, a gynecologist at Yale School of Medicine, and Estelle Griswold, The head of Planned Parenthood in Connecticut established a birth control clinic in New Haven, Connecticut. Buxton and Griswold were then arrested for breaking this law and ended up challenging the law all the way to the Supreme Court. This was the 1960s. The very conservative Supreme Courts, who had engaged in Supreme Court nullification for decades, had been replaced with a very liberal Supreme Court. Conservative Supreme Courts tend to want to nullify laws they don't like passed by Congress. Liberal Supreme Courts, on the other hand, tend to want to pass laws that weren't passed by Congress. I guess you could call this the process of Supreme Court legislation. At any rate, the Supreme Court didn't like Connecticut's law prescribing birth control. Their problem? This was a state law, so it was an issue for the state courts. Unless it violated a federal law or the U.S. Constitution, there was nothing the Supremes could do about it. There was the rub. The law didn't violate any federal or constitutional provisions. So what was the court to do? Say that this was a state issue and allow the states to figure it out? Unfortunately, this isn't what the Supreme Court does. As we saw with the 14th Amendment in the 19th century, our nation's highest court, despite its protestations to the contrary, has never felt constrained to abide by the laws that were passed by a state's democratically elected representatives. And so, when the Griswold Court was faced with a state statute that it felt was somewhere squarely out of the Middle Ages, rather than saying that this was a state issue and states should get rid of their own medieval legislation, they decided to get rid of it for Connecticut. Okay. They're going to get rid of the state statute, but what to do? There is no clause in the Constitution preventing states from maintaining medieval contraception laws that they haven't bothered to get rid of yet. But that wasn't a problem for seven members of a liberal Supreme Court at the time. William O. Douglas, the justice that authored the majority opinion, wrote that the First Amendment has a penumbra where privacy is protected from governmental intrusion. Really? No, it doesn't. Penumbra, as Douglas used it here, means a gray area surrounding the written text. According to Douglas, this penumbra, that's not actually written into the text, includes a general right to privacy. Seriously? It's not there, no matter how hard you look. It was just a fiction created by Douglas so he could invalidate a law that he really didn't like. I agree with Douglas. It was a ridiculous law. But the mechanism of our Constitution provides for antiquated laws such as this to be repealed by state legislatures, not the Supreme Court. The First Amendment gives us our rights to freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and freedom of assembly, as well as the right to petition government. That's it. There's nothing close to a right to privacy anywhere in there. Actually, for the legal nerds out there, I think it's an interesting case to read. Other justices wanted desperately to get rid of Connecticut's ridiculous law, but knew how silly Justice Douglas's reasoning was, so they authored their own concurring opinions, agreeing with Douglas that the law should be overturned, but disagreeing on why. But honestly, none of them came up with any better justifications for overturning Connecticut's law than Justice Douglas did. So why have I spent so much time on this one opinion? striking down some medieval Connecticut anti-contraception law? Because Griswold is the case that created a right to privacy out of whole cloth. When abortion came before a liberal Supreme Court in 1973, what did they base their decision on? The right to privacy, articulated in Griswold, of course. Prior to the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, the pro-life movement, was largely Catholic, with some support from Orthodox Jews. It was certainly something that was in the news, but as a burning national issue, it was way down the list. Abortion was legal in 20 states. The number had been growing as America continued to grow out of its mid-century conservatism, but Roe had a majority of seven of the nine members of the Supreme Court Surely the remaining two members were enlightened justices who saw the folly in this. Well, one was Hugo Black, who had been a member of the KKK in his younger years, and who had written the decision in Korematsu v. United States, which upheld the law in turning Japanese on the West Coast during World War II. So much for enlightened dissenting justices. Perhaps you could fit Potter Stewart, the other descending justice into the category of enlightened justice. But one out of nine? That's only batting an average of 111. Okay, we'll come back to abortion. Let's look at gun rights for a moment. When I was a boy, guns were pretty common in the semi-rural environment I grew up in. I didn't have anything more than a BB gun myself, but a lot of people I knew were hunters and had guns. Even for me, it was not uncommon for me to use my uncle's twenty two when I was helping him on his farm, attempting to get rid of the muskrats that were burrowing into the irrigation ditch, etc. In this environment, the National Rifle Association was well known and respected as a supportive association for hunters and sportsmen. Then, in 1991, Wayne LaPierre became the spokesman for the National Rifle Association, a position he continues to hold today. The NRA's days of primarily focusing on sporting guns were over. LaPierre learned that he could greatly increase his fundraising by frightening gun owners and convincing them that gun-hating liberals were out to get their guns. I met one ardent gun enthusiast early in 2009 after Obama had been elected to his first term. He was terrified about losing his guns and surprised I didn't know the source of his anxiety I subsequently learned that LaPierre had been telling his NRA members that Obama was out to gut the Second Amendment. Obama's alleged 10 point plan included such gems as banning the use of firearms for home defense, banning the manufacture, sale, and possession of handguns, and closing down 90% of the gun shops in America. Of course, none of this was on Obama's agenda. In fact, the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence had called Obama's record on gun control an abject failure. But pretending otherwise was pure gold for NRA's fundraising at the time. How much do LaPierre and the NRA believe their claims? Well, we can't know for sure, but here's what we know. As CEO of the NRA, Wayne LaPierre is now embroiled in a massive scandal for allegedly diverting millions of dollars of NRA funds to finance his lavish lifestyle, including his attempts to buy what Fox News has called a mansion in Texas purchased for his family and spending $270,000 on clothing between 2004 and 2017. This is not to mention having NRA-funded travel, including a stay in the Bahamas after the Sandy Hook shootings, trips to Italy and Budapest, and travel via chartered private jet. All of this has landed the NRA at the butt end of a lawsuit in New York, where the NRA is chartered, and where the Attorney General is attempting to shut them down. Okay, but what about the Supreme Court and the NRA's vaunted Second Amendment? Before LaPierre's hyperbolic and overblown claims of liberal elites wanting to deprive every good American of their guns, Second Amendment rights were just never a big thing. To the extent that the issue had been litigated before the Supreme Court, the Court had always held that the amendment meant just what it said. Here's the wording of the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The Second Amendment is the only amendment in the Bill of Rights that has a preliminary clause declaring the purpose of the amendment. That is, the purpose of the amendment was to provide armaments for the country's militia. What is the militia? Today, it's the National Guard, which doesn't even allow you to bring your own arms to train or to fight. So, should the Second Amendment grant a personal right to bear arms to Americans regardless of their status as potential militia members? I don't know. For me, what's more important is the Supreme Court's treatment of the issue. So let's look at what the Supreme Court said. When the court considered the issue in 2008, the decision turned on the question of whether the Second Amendment grants an individual right to Americans to bear arms, or is there a collective right? According to the collective right theory, the amendment protects a collective right of the states to maintain militias. And according to the individual rights theory, the amendment protects an individual's right to possess arms. The decision was written by Antonin Scalia. Scalia was a neoconservative whose judicial philosophy is often referred to as originalism. This philosophy basically says that judicial decisions should be guided by the intent of the legislators that originally wrote the law. Scalia used this philosophy to support many of his conservative opinions. Okay, no problem. If originalism can be used to limit a law's scope in things like civil rights, it cuts both ways and will limit the Second Amendment scope when the framers went so far as to explain that the very purpose of the amendment was to guarantee a well regulated militia, right? Not so much. In his opinion, Scalia spends 64 pages telling us why this isn't so, and concluding that the Second Amendment is an individual right. Really? I know, I know. I've just alienated virtually every one of my listeners. But hang in there. Listen to my argument before you turn this episode off. I've entitled this episode, The Mechanism of Democracy. So what is the mechanism of democracy? We've talked about what I've termed the power of chaos. That is, the amazing results that have accrued to societies that have adopted democratic governments. How, when thousands and thousands of actors are engaged in many millions of transactions, conversations, debates, and arguments in an attempt to craft the best possible battery of laws with which to govern a country, the results are amazing advancements over contemporary non-democratic societies of the day. We saw this happen in ancient Athens and in ancient Rome. Unfortunately, the draw of supreme rule was too strong, and the lessons of Athens and Rome would be forgotten until the U.S. tried its famous experiments with democracy and capitalism, beginning in 1776. Eventually, this resulted in the largest economy in the world and the great expansion of civil liberties we saw in the 1960s and 70s. Okay. But what about slavery? The fact that women couldn't vote in this country for longer than they've been able to vote? child labors in the 1800s, and a Supreme Court that, with decisions like Lochner versus. New York in 1905, held that states could not even enact anti-sweatshop legislation because of all things. Protecting workers from inhumane working conditions would violate the Fourteenth Amendment. That's my argument. Winston Churchill once allegedly quipped, Americans will always do the right thing after they've exhausted all the other options. We've watched the mechanism of democracy in action. We saw it when Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton organized the suffrage movement of the 19th century and fought their entire lives for the cause of women's suffrage. It was a tough battle for them. Men with the voting franchise were entrenched in their beliefs that women shouldn't be allowed to vote, but their children didn't have such entrenched beliefs. Some of them would listen to their fathers and carry on their fathers' prejudices. But many would hear Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton, or one of the many, many other well organized suffragettes, think for themselves and be one over to the side of women's suffrage. We watched it again with civil rights. But first We saw what devastating effect the Electoral College could have. The very average and otherwise forgettable Republican president, Rutherford B. Hayes, lost the popular vote to the Democrat, Samuel Tilden, by at least three percent. When a very tight race, developed in the Electoral College, the Republicans, the party of Lincoln, secretly worked out a deal with Southern Democrats to pull federal troops out of the South in return for their votes for Hayes in the Electoral College. This so-called Compromise of 1877, as we've noted, gave Hayes his one term as president. And although Hayes didn't accomplish anything else of note as a president, his administration ushered in the Jim Crow era that we noted in episode 29, including its lynchings and suppression of the African-American vote. This isn't an indictment of democracy. It's an example of the damage that can be done by our Electoral College by subverting the Democratic vote. Following the Civil War, Reconstruction changed lives for the better for thousands upon thousands of African Americans. They lived under an incredibly brutal slavery regime throughout the South. With Reconstruction, the Federal Freedmen's Bureau distributed confiscated Confederate land to former slaves in 40-acre plots allowing them three years to purchase the land outright. After the war, the Union army had hundreds if not thousands of surplus mules that it had used to haul their supply trains in the south. There is no need for these mules after the war, and many of these mules were distributed to these former slaves, though there is no official government policy to do so. This is where the term 40 acres and a mule originated. Although some blacks, such as Booker T. Washington, followed an approach of we'll just accept the racial apartheid offered to us and make the best of it, many did not. Instead, they fought to overturn the Jim Crow laws. By the turn of the century, outstanding black activists like Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois were working hard to expose the extent and horror of lynchings in the South and to establish the NAACP, among other things we've discussed how people in their 40s and 50s tend to become more ossified in their beliefs and rarely change long-held beliefs and philosophies. Yet we've watched as, over the generations, Americans have become more and more receptive to both the suffrage and African-American civil rights messages. Then we saw as the 19th Amendment was passed allowing women to vote and the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts passed in the 1960s. What's going on here? there's a clash between two historical drivers. One is the driver we have seen over and over again, the propensity to separate ourselves into various classes, where those with more power and wealth define themselves as superior in one way or another to those with less power and wealth. Though most men at the time were married, and many, if not most, presumably truly loved their wives and mothers, the fact that men at the time had political power and allowed them to wield that power over women and deny them access to political power of their own. As these were members of their own family, such power was not generally wielded malevolently. Blacks, on the other hand, were not members of their families and were a clear outgroup. We've seen the form such control over a discrete outgroup had. That's one driver the human tendency to divide into superior and inferior groups or classes. The second driver is a human tendency to lean toward justice. Is the desire for justice an innate trait of human nature, or is it a learned trait? Psychologists at Yale did experiments where babies watched helpful puppets and unhelpful puppets. Then they were given a choice between the two puppets. Over 80% of the babies, as young as five months, chose the helpful puppets. It's well accepted now that even young babies have a sense of fairness and justice. Unfortunately, this innate sense of justice can be overcome by appealing to our innate desire for superiority. In 19th century America, virtually all men believed they were doing the just thing by not allowing women the right to vote. Men understood that it was their responsibility to care for women, as, after all, Women are so emotional and impressionable, and they know nothing, after all, about commerce and industry. This sounds ridiculous to us now, but remember what I said before about evaluating people by the standards of their time, not by our contemporary standards. The question is not whether they are laudable by our standards, but whether they were able to move the moral arc of their society, that is, history's outer wheel, forward or not. In the early nineteenth century, there were simply no major democracies that allowed women to vote. It was unknown. So generation after generation of men grew up being socialized to believe that women were temperamentally and emotionally incapable of voting. Then in 1792, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote her seminal proto feminist work, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Though it was written in England, Wollstonecraft developed a following in the U.S., and a suffrage movement emerged in the U.S. It was minimal at first, after generations of socialization and concentration of political power in the hands of males who would take this suffrage movement seriously. The answer, of course, is younger minds. We are all, or at least most of us, born with a proclivity toward justice, as the Yale baby experiments showed. The arguments against allowing women the right to vote didn't make a lot of sense on their face. The arguments for women's suffrage, on the other hand, appealed to our innate sense of justice. When younger minds, not set in their ways, were exposed to these arguments, they were naturally receptive. The almost 100-year battle for black civil rights after the Civil War followed a similar course. The arguments for civil rights appealed to our innate sense of justice. The arguments against civil rights appealed to whites' desire to retain power, as they had attempted to hold on to the last link in the age-old great chain of being. This battle was more complicated than the fight for women's suffrage, because the fight for civil rights for blacks also included what we've termed the prime driver, that is, that most common of all historical drivers, the battle between in-groups and perceived out-groups. White women were not seen as a significant outgroup vis-à-vis white men. But at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, blacks certainly were an outgroup to a very racist, white America. This, then, is the mechanism of democracy in action. The point is not that the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act were passed or that women got the right to vote. But once women got the right to vote, very few men continued to believe that they should then be denied this right. That once the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts were passed, old Jim Crow attitudes began to disappear outside the South. When I was very young, racist jokes were acceptable in white society. By the time I was in college, they were unthinkable. The severe prejudice that allowed Jim Crow to survive, the belief that blacks should be segregated from whites, this is never again been a serious argument in American politics. No doubt about it, the mechanism of democracy works slowly, often painfully slowly. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, W.E.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, none of them lived to see the fruits of their life's work realized, as was the case with so many of the abolitionists who began speaking out against slavery in the 1700s. Each generation is given its own particular challenge to which they will apply the mechanism of democracy. If you are lucky enough to be alive toward the end of a cycle of democratic change, you may see great change come all at once. If you find yourself at the beginning of a cycle of democratic change, you may work all your life for what may seem only incremental change. Yet this seemingly incremental change can be incredibly important. In such work are the seeds of major social movements planted. These are examples of the mechanism of democracy, then. Members of a democratic society see a social evil in society, and start a movement to overturn that evil. Entrenched members of a society oppose the change, but younger minds are receptive and grow up recognizing that slavery, denying women the right to vote, and Jim Crow are unjust, and join the fight in even greater numbers. If they've all done a good job, and are not interrupted by things like world wars and Great Depressions, the children of those who began the movement should see all the hard work come to fruition and society change. What's notable about the mechanism of democracy is that when it's allowed to work, when it's run its course and has changed the nature of the body politic, the whole nature of the political discussion has changed. This is because people themselves have changed. It's taken a couple of generations but it's the nature of democracy that people engage in literally millions and millions of interpersonal interactions. From great speeches like Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech to the much more common dinner table conversations and late-night talks friends have over a beer, these interactions change people's minds on issues one at a time. Let me reiterate, things change because of the mechanism of democracy. That is, this ongoing debate that happens in a democratic country when a particular social or political issue is being discussed, debated, argued over, deliberated, contested, and fought over, over and over again in small venues, from two people discussing an issue to national marches and demonstrations. It takes so long because adults who have established their lives early change deeply held beliefs. Yet younger people do, and are often willing to listen to new ideas that challenge long-established orders. It also takes so long, because people with political power rarely want to cede some of their power to traditionally less powerful groups, especially out-groups. Yet, the mechanism of democracy is generally successful, not simply in achieving a more just result. A benevolent dictator could do that, but in changing the hearts of the people of the democracy to be more compassionate and to embrace the new change, whether it be women's suffrage, the Civil Rights Act, or gay marriage. Society achieves greater justice because people believe more deeply in justice, not because justice has been imposed on them. Thanks for hearing me out. I know that when you began this episode, you were probably a true believer in the result of either Roe v. Wade or the District of Columbia v. Heller's Second Amendment case. I'm not going to take a stand because my belief is in the process of democracy, that is, the mechanism of democracy. The mechanism of democracy is long and messy and, as Winston Churchill noted, usually gets things wrong before it gets things right. But when it gets things right, it not only finds the just result, but the debate that led to the result has convinced a new generation of the justness of that result, a belief that is then passed down to all subsequent generations. When Roe vs. Wade was decided, it was mostly Catholics and a few Orthodox Jews that opposed abortion. It hadn't become an evangelical cause yet. But then came Roe. the evangelicals were told that they had no voice in the matter. There was no use in even talking about it. It had been decided for them. Of all the issues in American democracy, this one was off the table. How did they react? It's human nature to fight if you're told you can't even have a voice in an important issue. They've been fighting ever since. Now Donald Trump has appointed three conservative justices to the Supreme Court. So there's a strong conservative majority on the court. Did Roe resolve the question of abortion in the U.S., or did it switch the battleground to who can create a majority of liberals or conservatives on the court to either uphold or overturn Roe? The battle over abortion rights would have been worked out by now if the court hadn't dictated the answer. The mechanism of democracy would have been long, messy, and difficult, but it works and would have given us an answer that the vast number of Americans accepted, like women's suffrage or civil rights. The Supreme Court didn't resolve the issue with Roe. It just kicked the can down the road for 50 years and made the argument more heated and partisan. Don't believe me? Watch this Supreme Court and see what happens should they overturn Roe. Like the Heller decision? Think liberals aren't pushing to get a majority on the Supreme Court and overturn it? Justice Scalia was bright, even for a Supreme Court justice. He did a good job crafting an argument that the Second Amendment was an individual right, probably about as good as could be done. The problem is that to do this, he had pretty much to hold that the entire first clause, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, was surplus verbiage, something that had never been done before in the history of constitutional law. The current, more conservative makeup of the Supreme Court will change at some point. That's the nature of things. Think another, more liberal justice, under pressure caused by people, fed up by more mass shootings, couldn't craft an even more convincing opinion, holding that the Second Amendment is a collective right? For five decades, liberals have praised the Burger Court for its decision in Roe. But that's short-sighted ask the Supreme Court to create a right out of whole cloth like this is to ask for the right right now, but to lay the true battle to be fought down the road with an even more determined foe who's been denied a democratic voice in an issue that may be dearer to them than any other. I hear a collective cry from my audience, but it isn't fair. It's simply unjust to ask women to return to the mindset of denying them reproductive freedom, Or perhaps, to tell gun owners once their right to possess guns has been given constitutional protection to later strip it away. Yeah, I'd agree with all that. Life's not fair. It's been my argument all along. There's so much that's unjust in today's society, but it's unbelievably fairer than it was in ancient Athens. Athens was pretty fair if you were a wealthy male landowner, but if you were anything beneath that, It was unbelievably unfair by today's standards. The justice available for the masses of people in society has progressed by light years since then. The pace of this progress toward ever more justice has accelerated greatly since the modern political democracies became the norm in the West 250 years ago. We've come a long way, but there's still much to do. Every generation is given their challenge their injustice to overcome. It's easier to ask, a beneficent Supreme Court that believes as you do to simply decide the decision in your favor. Sadly, though, that doesn't end the issue or the fight. You're right. The mechanism of democracy is unfair to those who are fighting the battle. But once the battle's over, you've not only made society a more just place for you, you've made it so for all generations after you. I wish there was an easier way. It would have been great if Susan B. Anthony could have seen her life's work fulfilled. It would have been nice if W. B. Du Bois didn't have to move to Accra to feel comfortable in his own skin and to live out his final years in Ghana. But that's the way it is with the mechanism of democracy. To each generation is given their challenge. Some live up to it as the suffragettes of the 1910s did. Some fail to, as Rutherford B. Hayes and the post-Reconstruction generation did, a lifetime of reading history has convinced me of one thing. There's no simple answer. Our foreparents brought us democracy. It's up to us to embrace our place on the wheel of history and to do our part to move it one revolution forward. This can't be done by having a Supreme Court or anybody with plenary powers dictating a result for us. It could only be done by embracing our place within the mechanism of democracy. Your read this week is Assassination Generation by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. I don't care what side of the gun debate you're on. If you care at all about guns or the modern epidemic of mass shootings, you have to read this book. Once every generation or two, a book changes everything And there are those books that should, but haven't reached their critical mass yet. Please read this book. Enjoy. See you next week.